Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Story of Job, Certainty but No Security. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 4th, 2015. After I finished grad school, I moonlighted as a at a Presbyterian church as a pastor for home visitation. The very first person I visited that July in 1985 was a widow named Jan. I could barely comprehend her story as I sat in her living room. Jan had just lost her husband, her two sons, her father, an uncle, and a nephew in a single boating accident on a lake in Minnesota. Six loved ones had perished in a freak storm on their annual fishing trip. Jan was a modern-day Job. And as the four artistic images which we've posted for this week's show, the suffering of Job has captured the human imagination for millennia. Even people who are ignorant of the Bible speak about the patience of Job as some sort of complimentary proverb, but I've never understood why. Job is anything but patient. Between the prologue and the epilogue, most of the story is a tedious and acrimonious debate between Job and his phony friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They insist that Job deserves his misfortune. It's obviously a punishment for his sins, and he therefore needs to repent. But from start to finish, Job protests his innocence. He complains, despairs, doubts, questions, anguishes, and finally resigns himself to his mysterious fate. Nor does the story of Job deal directly with important questions, like why the wicked prosper, why God sometimes feels silent and hidden, or why the moral calculus in our world sometimes does not add up. Those matters are peripheral to a more narrow question. Job explores a specific question about the relationship between piety in prosperity. Although Job never learns the origin or purpose of his ordeal, the writer-narrator informs us as readers. In other words, we know some things that he doesn't. Satan comes before God with a provocative question. Does Job fear God for nothing? He says that Job's faith has an ulterior motive. Doesn't Job expect a quid pro quo of some sort? Divine blessings for human faith? The accuser adversary, for such is the literal meaning of his name in Hebrew, then makes a wager with God. He bets that he can prove that for Job, an immensely wealthy man with a wonderful family, God is nothing more than a cosmic sugar daddy. In other words, his faith in Yahweh is fueled by its benefits. God, Satan charges, is really no more than a rabbit's foot or good luck charm. 
Test him and try him. Squeeze him, Satan wagers, and you'll see that Job's faith is opportunistic and egocentric, rather than gratuitous and theocentric. God accepts the bet, and according to chapter 2, verse 3, he permits Job to be, quote-unquote, ruined without reason. A first wave of disasters decimates Job's extravagant wealth and kills his ten children. Then Satan ravages Job himself with festering boils from head to foot. To say that life hands him a dramatic reversal would be a gross understatement. But despite his impatience, his agonizing questions, and emotional outbursts, Job passes the tests with flying colors at each stage of the drama. A close reading of the story makes this crystal clear. Before his fiasco began, we read that Job was, quote, blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Then, during the crisis, the narrator says that in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And once again, he did not sin in what he said. Though ruined without reason, God is able to tell Satan that Job maintained his integrity. And then, the epilogue ends with another reversal, but of a different sort. Whereas at the beginning of the story, Job sought the help of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, at the end of the story, God commands them to seek Job's prayers and intercession. They had wrongly charged Job with impiety, but God rightly charged them with what the story calls folly. We read in 42.7, They have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The story of Job contains several auxiliary lessons that are, in fact, important. In the New Testament, James commends Job for his perseverance. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar warn us about trying to help or fix our friends with pious cliches when they suffer, despite our good intentions. Sometimes it's best to sit with our friends in silence. I still remember sitting in Jan's living room 30 years ago and telling myself to keep my mouth shut. Even though he wore his heart on his sleeve and vented his emotions, God affirmed that Job spoke rightly, which is a reminder that we never have to sanitize our feelings before God. Job also teaches that we should not make a direct connection between rewards and punishments in this life with a person's sin or righteousness. Encountering the majesty and mystery of God, Job confessed in 42.3 that he surely spoke of things I did not understand. And it was precisely this admission of ignorance and embrace of modesty that led him from second-hand knowledge about God to a direct and personal experience with God. We read in 42.5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you.
In addition to all of these, though, the central lesson of this ancient story includes a most contemporary application. Many television preachers and books teach that God wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is, if you send them your money. Job exposes that lie. In his book, 40 Acres and a Goat, Will Campbell derides such teachers as electronic soul molesters. Genuine faith doesn't manipulate God for material gain, fear of punishment, or avoidance of unjust suffering. The 19th century British novelist and poet, Mary Elizabeth Coleridge, captures such authentic faith in her poem called After St. Augustine. It's a short poem of four lines. Sunshine let it be, or frost, storm or calm, as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift were lost, thee thyself we could not lose. I've always appreciated how the Lutherans of the Reformation distinguished between earthly security and divine certainty. Security, they said, depends on human guarantees. Certainty depends on God's promises. So Job reminds us that while life doesn't offer us any guarantees, we do have the certainty that nothing can separate us from God's love. For books this week, we go to the country of the Congo. The title of the book is Mama Coco and the Hundred Gunmen, an ordinary family's extraordinary tale of love, loss, and survival in Congo. The author is Lisa Shannon. New York Public Affairs, 2015. This book is 213 pages long. The most underreported humanitarian disaster of our time has been the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly known as Zaire. Since the start of conflicts there in 1996, <coughs> five million people have perished out of a population of about 50 million, a staggering 10% of the population. Over half of those deaths occurred since the wars ostensibly ended in July 2003. The overwhelming majority of the victims were civilians. About half were children. Millions more Congolese have fled to neighboring countries. Hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. Peace accords officially ended the wars, although continued hostilities and the social, economic, and political consequences of the wars make for a fragile peace. Stalin once said that whereas a million deaths is a statistic, one death is a tragedy. Lisa, Lisa Shannon, a human rights activist, speaker, and author, moves beyond Congo's mind-numbing numbers and focuses on a single extended family in order to shine a light onto the Congolese darkness. 
In 2010, she returned to the Congo with the expatriate Francisca Thelen for a five-week visit with the latter's extended Congolese family. And in particular, Thelen's mother and matriarch of the family, Mama Coco. In addition to two wars, the Congo has also suffered at the hands of a madman named Joseph Kony and his Lord's Resistance Army. Based upon interviews with Mama Coco's extended family, Shannon describes what has happened to their village of Dungu, a town of about 25,000 people that has swollen to 125,000 because of refuge, refugees fleeing the Lord's Resistance Army. In addition to the savagery of the LRA, the people of Dungu have suffered at the hands of drunken Congolese soldiers, a hapless United Nations, and local militias. Shannon's book belongs to the literature of witness, as does her earlier book about the Congo called A Thousand Sisters in 2010. The single best book on the Congo is still the one by Jason Stearns in 2011. It's called Dancing in the Glory of Monsters. Once again, Lisa Shannon, Mama Coco and the Hundred Gunmen. And for movies this week, we go from Africa to Antarctica. The title of this documentary film from New Zealand is Antarctica, A Year on Ice, 2014. Anthony Powell grew up on a dairy farm in New Zealand, but has spent much of his adult life living and working in Antarctica. He produced directed and filmed this 90-minute documentary about what life is like at the bottom of our planet. The project took 10 years, but in his hands, pictures are truly better than words, especially those with his time-lapse technology. During the summer months, about 5,000 people live in Antarctica, most of them doing science, and most of them at McMurdo Station, the largest of 30 bases that dot the continent. But that population dwindles to 700 people in winter, in a land the size of the United States. For four months in summer, the sun never dips below the horizon, and during the four months of winter, it never rises. Then, in the magical month of March, the sun rises and sets at normal times. The winds can howl at up to 200 miles an hour. Temperatures plummet to minus 50. Anthony Powell turns to the everyday people at McMurdo to tell their stories. A retail clerk, a fireman, a mechanic, an administrator. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. It would, make, <clears throat> it would make for a great family film night. Once, a, once again, Antarctica, a year on ice. And as we enter the fall season, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889. It's called Peed Beauty.
Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire-call chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 4th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.